0: Hey, welcome to Conversations with my dear friend, Jeff Conway. My name is Susan. This is A Different Kind of Walk.
1: And we welcome you now to uh, another podcast of A Different Kind of Walk. Uh, Today, we are... um, Once again, I mean, I need to come up with some new words, but truly honored and thrilled uh, to have Sophronia Scott with us. A wife, a mother, a friend, a brilliant author, uh, an educator. Um, So you'll hear about some of her books that we've read that will come up in the interview But um, Amazon or Google her because she has plenty more books for you to read and enjoy. Um, And so Susan is here. Also say hi, Susan, to everybody.
0: Hi, Susan, to everybody.
1: Oh, very good. Very good. So Sophronia, tell us a little bit about your background and your life and yourself before we get to talking about Thomas Merton. Uh, oh, my goodness,
2: Jeff, where to begin? Uh, I, well, I did not grow up in Connecticut. I live in Connecticut now. I grew up in Lorraine, Ohio, which many people, at least in the literary world, know of as the, the hometown of author Toni Morrison. And I, I grew up in a home where uh, there were a lot of kids or seven kids in my family. Uh, my father was illiterate. Um, but he worked in a steel mill and he worked in that steel mill for 34 years, actually it's the same steel mill that Tony Morrison's father worked in.
1: Wow. So it's,
2: it's a big factory area. Um, and that's how a lot of people, you know, earned good livings, you know, good middle class livings. Um, I ended up going to, to Harvard from there and really kind of never went back. So I was there. Being pre-med, because that even though I was I'd been writing since I was a child, I didn't know about writing as a living. Mm. And I just knew I needed to support myself because my family didn't have a lot of money. And uh, but I, I loved writing, I loved reading, and I was still doing both. And I was taking a writing class at Harvard and my junior year, my mentor in that class said to me, What are you doing? Don't you realize you're good enough to get paid for this? And I said, What? How? Where? Tell me. <laughs> And uh, he he helped me connect with a recruiter at Time Magazine. And I got hired out of college at Time Magazine, where I started off as a reporter researcher and sort of rose through the ranks. And I stayed in the world of corporate journalism for like 15 years, um, eventually thinking about what I wanted to write for myself and then started doing that. Um, I lived in New York City. Uh, my husband, who is also from Ohio, Uh, moved to New York with me after we got married. And when we had our son, because we are both from Ohio and used to to being outside as children, uh, we decided that we did not want to raise our child in the city. And my husband was already teaching in Connecticut. So we just moved to Connecticut. And uh, we've been here now for uh, 17 years.
1: Okay. Where are you in seven children? What number are you? I am number three and the oldest girl. So oh, I two, okay. two
2: older brothers, four younger sisters. So, so not does, quite the middle child.
1: Does the oldest girl, does that make you the second mom?
2: Uh, not quite because we were all very close in age. Um, okay. My sisters, uh, two of my sisters, we were born one year right after the other. Oh, And wow. um, a sister after that, you know, I was only uh, four when that uh third sister was born and I was seven when my fourth sister was born so no (laughs) no way to be the mom
1: yeah wow
2: but I do have that instinct that older sister instinct of wanting to share and show what I've learned and my my sisters are are kind of you know firebrands in their own right they actually didn't need me to do that so maybe that's why I, I try to write helpful things because well if I can't help anybody in my family, I'll just share information to the world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you have been in Newtown all 17 of those years or?
2: Yeah, I live in Sandy Hook. Yes. All 17. Okay.
1: I had no idea. I've told you um, my son and daughter-in-law live in Newtown, uh, but had no idea that you were from where they were from. So that kind of made me smile, but also, you know, is a bit of a a jolt and, and you write, and certainly my daughter-in-law, I mean, it drives her crazy. Where are you from? And she says Sandy Hook and people go, Oh, Um, and kind of have that reaction of what happened there 10 years ago in the school. And we're speaking the morning uh, after what just happened in Uvalde, Texas. So as much as you talk about raising a child in a book that you wrote with your son, which was so great, This Child of Faith, I thought that was going to be a heavy book. I didn't realize realize it was going to be a journey book about your faith uh, and your faith journey in the Episcopalian church.
2: This Child of Faith is about our family's faith journey, I had told my husband, you know, we weren't going to a church. And I told my husband after we had our son is that I did not want to be a family that goes to church just because, you know, that's what this family does. We go to church. I wanted it to mean something to our son. So I, I said, I, I felt God. I felt a strong presence of God when I was a child. I feel, I think all children have this. He will sense it. And at some point he will ask, and that's when we will go. Mm. And and that's exactly what happened. That um, totally by chance he became enamored of Veggie Tales. Right, he heard the hairbrush song when he was in kindergarten, and and started you know wanting more you know. Veggie Tales videos and songs. And that's when I learned that these veggies tell Bible stories. And I thought, oh, that is really cool. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> let's get more of that into the house. And and we were doing that. And he found a CD of Sunday school songs at the library. He was listening to it every night before you went to bed. He usually listens to music and things, even now um, going to sleep. And one night he said to me, Mama, what is Sunday school? And can I go? He was six years old. I said, Yes, that's a great idea. We'll all go. Let's do it. <laughs> and um, and that's when I started looking for a church, and I did not know about the different denominations. I only knew that that the experiences of church I I had were uncomfortable and didn't seem to fit um, the faith that I felt. And so, yeah, um, yeah, the first one I I I went to was um, I don't know how to describe it. It, it was more of a I believe a recently planted church let's put it that way and uh and that didn't feel right that felt more like what i had usually experienced this church and so basically I, it's almost like I, I just went across the street because there's this huge if you've been to newtown there's a huge stone church right there on top of a hill in the middle of town near the the flagpole that's like the center of town and it's trinity episcopal church okay and, um, and i knew this church because my son had gone to preschool there. So, um, so I went in through the front doors and they had those little, um, those little, uh, what do you call them? Um, Not circulars, but they had these little pamphlets um, explaining, you know, what does it mean to be Episcopalian? And and I I picked up all of them and and started reading them. And I, I recognized, you know, I went to Harvard and I, I recognized that this felt very familiar. It was like Memorial Church, like going to Memorial Church at Harvard. And I thought, this, this feels right. This seems to be the way I think about things, even the fact that you can think about things. <laughs> and uh, I also liked the rhythm of the, the liturgy. I like structure. And I felt this was something that, that Tane might appreciate. My husband is a lapsed Catholic. I thought, so he could possibly connect with this as well. So let's try this. And that's what we did and it fit and it worked. And uh, and we kept going.
1: You, you sure did. Was that the very first year that you were a part of the church that you attended that all the Holy Week services?
2: Yes. Um, yeah. I did that for the first couple of years. And uh, it just seemed like, yeah, like this is the thing to do. And, and when you do something on a regular basis, stuff happens. You know, I don't know what was going to happen, but, but things change. And so, uh, yeah, I was up for that journey. Um, I wanted to add, you know, the, it's important to point out that the Sandy Hook tragedy comes toward the end of that book. And the reason I, I point this out is because, you know, people tend to think that, especially when they hear, you know, faith connected to a tragedy in that way, they assume that a person starts going to church after the tragedy. And that, and that did happen. There were, there were families that, that started coming to our church after that happened. Um, but the reason I wanted to write that book is because I realized that during, as we were dealing with the tragedy in the days after my son's godbrother died in the tragedy, I didn't realize, at that point, we had been going to church almost two years. I did not realize how much my son's faith was sustaining him in that moment. So he was eight years old and, and, and for those who don't know, yes, my, my son was in the school that day and uh, the son of, of his godmother, uh, Ben Wheeler died um, in the shooting. And I was putting Tane to bed just a couple of nights afterwards. And I said to him, how are you doing? And he said wide, his eyes opened wide, mama? I just feel like I'm going to see Ben again.
1: Mm. He's going
2: to come down here from heaven and he's going to be here with all of us. Mm. And I just said, you know, Tane, I think you're right. You know, and I, I had recently read uh, N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. I don't know if you know it, but, um, but it talks about the concept of bodily resurrection and, and how we've lost track of that. And, and I was sitt- I was, <laughs> I'm looking at my son, and I'm thinking my son did not read N.T. Wright. Right. And yet, he senses that, he feels that, right? And and I realized that some that that he already he was already that connected to his faith. Right. right. And and so in the book you see that this did not happen out of the blue. This is, you know, him already having that sense as a child and then having that, having the the structure for that to develop in him, right? Of of going to church. Right. Um, I, I like to say you, you build the ark before the storm. Yep. Right. And I feel so fortunate that that that's what we had done unknowingly of course, but
1: but yeah. It's certainly built in a different way when it's built before the storm. And, um, so I don't know how much older Tane was at the time when, um, you know, he had some challenges and some questions and you went back and talked to him about, do you remember that vision you had of your conversation with Ben?
2: Yeah, he was, he was uh, gosh, maybe about middle school around that time Uh, maybe a little bit younger, but, um, but a few years after Ben died and he, he was in a place where, you're getting into puberty and he's on the bus and um, the other kids around him um, are, are talking about death and, and they feel like nothing happened, like things just go to Black, right? And, and he was just troubled by this. And sometimes he would ask his friends to come to church with him and, and disappointed that, the, of course, that they would not. And he was telling me about one of these conversations that, that you know, when people die, it just goes to Black. And I said to him, um, is, is that what you think? And, and, and he's like, um, No, I'm trying to remember exactly how this conversation went. But, but he, the way he was talking to me, I could tell that he had had a sense of, of someone coming to him. And I said, I finally said, Who did you see, Tane? And he said that, that he had had a, a dream about Ben. And um, so, well, oh, what, what happened in this dream? And he said that, that it's like Ben comes to him. And and they talk as though he was still around. But Ben asks him, you know, we'll ask about his family and how things are doing, and and just having a conversation, um, and that he's all right, right? And 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 I said to him, so you you know, you know that what the kids on the bus say is not true, right? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, really? he knows. That. I told him that that is real. Yeah. Um, and another time, more recently, he said to me. It's like we have more of Ben now than ever before. Because Ben is everywhere.
1: Mm. Like ben,
2: ben is here with us. Ben is with his mother, right?
1: Yeah. So
0: two things. My dad died last year. Um, and I've had very similar feelings about like, no, it's actually like he's here more than he was. because um, he's everywhere. And yeah, I find that. I'll end up talking to him and envisioning him in certain parts of my house that like, it's not like he was ever really there. We live quite a ways away, but yeah, I don't know. It's like he's with me all the time now, oddly enough. So I feel like I relate to that idea. Um, The other thing I was going to bring up was both of you have mentioned in different ways, the idea that you don't always click spiritually with the people that you expect to, whether it's, you know, the first church that you visited, Sophronia, or whether, Jeff, it was the people in the Bible study that you went to, um, and it was just like, these are not my people. Um, and that's actually a topic that you bring up in The Seeker and the Monk. Is My question that is, when you have had those connections,
2: um, has it been a surprise? Uh, Susan, I've been thinking a lot about surprises lately, and I feel like God is bringing them now more than ever, like, because I'm, I'm older now, and I feel like, sometimes I feel like I've seen it all, but it's like, God keeps throwing me curveballs. <laughs> no, you haven't. No, you haven't. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think I mentioned this in The Seeker and the Monk. I feel like whenever I am in a point of, of despair, for some reason, um, God always responds, and it's always with a person,
0: mm.
2: right? It's not like something shows up to magically make the problem go away, like like a windfall or or um, I can't describe whatever out of the blue things. But 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 the help that shows up is always a person, and I, I pay attention to that. And and it's not always the the, the people. I I don't even expect a person, but it's always the right person. Right. How can I doubt when I am so well cared for? Right. When when the people that I need are brought to me. Mm. Right. And and we don't always recognize that. Maybe that's why people doubt, is because they don't see that God is at work all the time. Right. And um one of the, the recent surprises is, is is um someone who who I have not been friends with like for, for like 40 years, like someone I knew very early on in my college years. And and the thing that I keep thinking about is, you know, why is this person showing up? And I, okay, maybe, maybe there's something going on in that person's life, and, and that person that that needs, you know, either his life is gonna be saved or my life's gonna be saved. I don't know what's happening, but 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 I think it's important to to pay attention because there's there's always God at work, right?
1: Very much so. So you're talking about companions in your life. So it seems like Thomas Merton really became a companion on your journey of faith. Am I seeing that correctly from what I read?
2: Yes, absolutely. Thomas Merton was a Catholic monk who rose to prominence in the late 1940s based on an autobiography that he wrote of himself when he was a very young man called The Seven Story Mountain and went on to become a a prolific writer on both spirituality and then later on social issues. I read his journals. Now, the thing I want to say about The Seeker and The Monk, and this was um, uh, based on the brilliance of my editor, uh, in the book, we address um, topics that we all deal with today, right? So ambition, materialism, faith, love, um, activism, race. And I was trying to figure out the order in which these um, topics needed to come in the book. And as I wrote, my editor kept saying to me, now remember a lot of people don't know who Thomas Merton is uh, mm-hmm. because I tend to talk about him as though everybody knows <laughs> who yep. Thomas Merton is. Yep. And, but then I finally said, you know, maybe that's the order of the chapters. Maybe we should order this in the the um, the time frame of his life that he would have most dealt with each of these areas, and in this way, we can shape it and have the book be biographical and have a biographical order, so people can be learning about Thomas Martin even as I'm having this conversation. With him. Conversation. So, so I say that so that people can know that um, if they don't know Thomas Merton, that this will be a good book for them to start with, mm-hmm. because right. they will learn something about him and then they can go on and read his other works. Yeah, right. right. And he started journaling when he was very young, long before he was a monk, right? So very young man, uh, late teens, early twenties, and his journals, seven volumes go all the way up to just a, a couple of days before he died. Wow. So um, with, with with a few lapses, um, but but for the most part pretty consistent and these journals um in his will it was stipulated that they not be published until 25 years after his death so he could be pretty free in them
1: okay Um,
2: some some of the work in the journals uh did show up in in a more polished form in other books like the sign of jonas um parts of conjectures of a guilty bystander for example but um But for the most part, you know, he's he's sharing his frustrations and 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 his um, his doubts, right? His struggles. Um, And and I just I felt. I felt connected to him. Right. I I felt that young man that I wanted to scold. I felt this this person in middle age who's like, oh, yes, I'm going through that, too. (laughs) And and just all all of it. you know, to the point where when I visited the monastery, I visited Gethsemane in December of twenty nineteen i just I just felt myself deeply mourning him right mm-hmm. i wished I wished I could have been walking those grounds with him. I wish that he could really be there talking to me. Um, I don't know, I feel um <laughs> There must be something lacking in that I'm I'm not able to have certain conversations I guess with living people like I guess I have to seek out dead people to talk to.
1: <laughs> and I love that you wrote scold because you scolded him a few times in the book. You didn't you weren't mean to him, you didn't put him down, but with such a mother's compassion you said, "Oh, Thomas," I mean, it was a scolding uh, and a hug and um, some warm words to him there. You talk about uh, this sense of him almost having to split himself uh, in the book, The Seeker and the Monk, split his life a bit and that struggle. and, And that was part of your scolding and compassion with him, I think, was that struggle he had of living as a human man um, and living as a monk the way he thought a monk should live. Um, What impressed you? What, What affected you most with that? Split in that struggle that he had on his journey there.
2: Well, I think you're you're referring to the split where he talks about. Yeah, you know, he became Father Louis, right? So Louis was his his right. name.
1: I Louis. think right that Thomas Merton walked in, or no? Father <laughs> Louis walked in with Thomas Merton on his back, right? He,
2: he said he had this writer, Thomas Merton, who followed him in. Yes, and and he cannot get rid of him. And that this Thomas Merton, you know, whispers book ideas to him and marketing ideas when he should be praying and, and, uh, and, and that he should somehow supposed to get rid of him. But uh, fortunately his superiors knew better, right? And, and encouraged him to write. Now, I feel this way because this sense of, you know, we have to be one way or another, that it's all or nothing. Um, but I believe we, we have all these different aspects of ourselves. And if we try to tamp down something that is innately part of us and which makes us who we are, um, to me, that's, it's like, it, it will rise up somehow. Right. And we can only make ourselves miserable by, by trying to, to push that back. Yeah, and right. also it's about understanding who we are and trying to find ways to honor all of the things that we are, um, even if it's only to, to look at it and say, okay, why is that there and what do I need to do about it? And by that, I mean the, the light and dark aspects of ourselves. Um, a friend of mine, uh, just last week, I was in New Orleans with, um, with some writers and I was describing uh, my next novel. And he said, Sophronia has no villains in her books. Mm-hmm. And by that, and and that doesn't mean i mean there are villains in the books but but what he means is that i'm always showing the human side of that villain so that the reader can see that could be me right. right that that we all have these these light and dark parts of ourselves and we're always trying to to push something back without truly understanding what it is and why it's there and if we did we could somehow feed that part without devastating mm-hmm. ourselves Right, right. So, um, so I felt that about Merton. I wanted him to have compassion for himself, to understand that God has compassion for him, yeah. and, um, and that it's okay to to have a little bit of ego about it. To be okay that he's wondering whether Gary Cooper will play him if they did a movie of Seven uh-huh. Story <laughs> Mountain. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <Yeah. You> know? <laughs> um. So, so yeah, I. I wanted Thomas Martin to have more compassion for both sides of himself.
0: Again, as I'm reading both of these books, and I think I I heard you do an interview once, or maybe it's in one of these, I don't remember, but you mentioned that you don't necessarily, you don't consider yourself a theologian, which is interesting because I think typically people who encounter a monk and who do so much, um, in-depth research into them um, are typically like doctoral students, but through reading these books and hearing about how you sensed God as a child, it sounds very mystical. And so my question, finally, to get to it, is do you feel like people receive you differently than they would if you were Reverend Dr. Sophronia Scott?
2: Yeah, people ask me all the time if I'm ordained and I I say, no, that is, that is not my calling. And the reason I feel so is that I feel that the experiences that, that, that you describe Susan as mystical, I feel are available to everybody. And we tend to think that the Reverend Doctor people have something going on with God that we don't. and We, we kind of, you know, put them on a, um, uh, not a pedestal, but but we just separate them from us. And I don't want that separation, right? I, I want to be a lay person and that as a lay person, I want um, people to see that my experience is their experience. And I will tell you a story, Susan, this, this to me is the essence of the Thomas Merton book that I was so excited about. Um, A friend emailed me about a post he'd seen on Facebook. So a woman was reading Secret and the Monk and she was reading that part about a a mystical experience that i would had and feeling jealous. And she said, I'm I'm reading this with the envy of a 14 year old, just feeling like, well, why do other people get to have these experiences and not me? (laughs) And she was reading the part where I had, um, I was talking about icons right? And the icons I have in my first space, mm-hmm. and what Merton has. And for some reason, she felt impelled to take her favorite icon off the shelf and put it in her lap. And she has the icon in her lap and she's reading the book, my book. And she says, and for some reason, author Scott begins to quote John, I am the good shepherd and I know mine and mine know me. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So she read out of the blue, Scott quotes that. And she says, for the end of the story, see photo. And the photo she had taken off her shelf was the icon of the good shepherd. Uh, <laughs> and, and it said, hashtag, like, holy week approaches or something like that. Uh, and, and I said, I, and I was like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it was right. like, like, I want to say, told you. <laughs>
1: like,
2: yeah. that, that's it, you know, I want people to see. God is talking to all of us at all times at work in your life at all times. But are you listening? Are you seeing uh, it? Right. And, and feeling that connection and then walking in the confidence of that connection. Right. So, so I feel that that I can convey that better being just the front. Right.
1: right. Um, but, but I like how you're saying this, that, Whatever rhythm a person might have, uh, God is always there and always speaking. And we just have to allow ourselves to listen and experience that. Susan.
0: Yep. So here's my last question. And it ties perfectly in with what you're talking about, um, because our time is almost up. And I want to be respectful of your time. Um, On page 90 of The Seeker and the Monk you do put a Rumi quote, which is a lovely one. And Rumi is a Persian poet, a Sufi mystic. Um, and he writes, out beyond ideas of right and wrongdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. And in the book, you're, um, you, mention, you talk about people of different faiths and different backgrounds meeting together and, and finding common ground despite the various things that have separated us inside culture. Um, First of all, I love that. I think it's lovely. I'm so glad you shared that inside of your book. And my question is, have you been lucky enough to have those experiences of crossing lines of making unlikely friends and experiencing God in unlikely places.
2: Not enough. I would I would like to have more conversations like that. They they are hard to come by. Um, and in fact, I you know I made this comment about talking to dead people. Um, you know, there's one of the, the dead people I'm really curious. I wish I could talk to Robin Gibb from the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. so when when he was about 19 years old he was in a a, a bad train accident like it's it's a historic train accident in london or going on the way to london like 40 50 people died in this train and he and his girlfriend were were in this train and he talked about the train um spinning like you know because it came off the track and it's spinning and i read an interview where he talked about the calmness that came over him during as the train spun and he had this sense and he's like, I'm not a church going person, but I was thinking about God. Mm-hmm. And when the train settled, he had this calm about him that, that was able to, to figure out which way was up to get a window open to get out to get his girlfriend out. And he realized he was in a different place. Cause she was, she was of course, totally panicked and freaked out, but he had the calm to get them out and then to help others get out. Mm. And, and it wasn't until after like at, at the hospital that he finally, you know, like, you know, kind of broke down, but I want to talk to him about that moment, mm. right? That he knew, he knew he sensed God in that moment. He sensed that he was going to be all right. And that that he had work to do, right? And and I felt that before, and I feel that I feel like more people have had instances like that,
1: right? Right.
2: and and those are the conversations that, that we need to talk about because it affirms it affirms that sense for all of us, right? I right? and and I don't think we get to have those conversations enough. So here I am wanting to have a conversation with the dead. person.
1: <laughs> right,
2: it's hard to find a living person.
1: And one that shocked the heck out of me because you're nowhere near old enough to be a Bee Gees fan because that's when I was in college and I was in college way before you were. So,
2: Well, it depends on which Bee Gees. I mean, I recently saw the Bee Gees documentary, How to Mend a Broken Heart. So I, that, I mean, I've liked Bee Gees music ever since I was, um, I didn't know it was the Bee Gees. Right. I didn't realize that that they got famous in the sixties and, but they had right. this whole life before Saturday Night Fever. Oh, I yeah. think Saturday Night Fever came out when I was in elementary school, early junior high when that came out. So um, so that was my sense of, of them. So, so yeah, I, I've always had them in my head. I just didn't know anything about them until recently. So this was only in the past what year or two that I saw this documentary and, and, and just like, what? And, and started reading a lot about them. There's a lot of spiritual undertones in their work right? Mm. The word, um, how deep is your love? The word savior is in that song.
1: Oh, yeah. So,
2: Right? And so... I know that um, well.
1: I love that song because of that. Yes.
2: So it's... So I just... That just made me really curious about about them. And so, yeah, I've been reading. I haven't written anything yet. I think I probably will, but I've been reading and and thinking a lot about the beach.
0: (laughs)
1: That's very interesting. So... Thomas Merton became your companion and you journeyed with him well. And I really want to invite everybody um, uh, to get a copy. However you do that audible or actual books, like I'm still trying to do uh, the seeker and the monk. And I can't wait to read um, more of your works On a personal note, um, you're about to embark on a new journey. Um, Tane going off to school, just that whole journey that you have ahead. Anyway, I want you to know that I will be praying for you and thank you so much for um, sharing so beautifully about um, what you've written.
0: Thank you, it was lovely meeting both of you. Thanks for joining us for A Different Kind of Walk. Until next time, live well.